What is it that crosses your mind when you read a passage like the one we've just read? This is one of those passages in Scripture that could easily, by any of us in our daily Bible readings, be overlooked on our way to to other to to verse seven and and more seemingly eventful uh, and eventful uh, passages. It seems like a just a uh, uh, a transitory, transitional in that sense, a transitional um, section of the book of Acts. But we believe in the inspiration of all scripture, in, the, in that scripture is God breathed all scripture. And so are these verses, verse 1 through to 6. And yes, they may, may not contain any kind of miraculous, shocking event. But nonetheless, I think they contain something that we so often overlook in reading through these passages. There is a reason why the Spirit of God gives us seemingly uneventful, simple passages uh, to read in narratives. And one of the primary reasons is to illustrate for us those doctrines that we read of, uh, those great doctrinal concepts that we find in the epistles. We need epistles, the, the letters uh, of Paul, of John, of Peter. We need the epistles to, to kind of dump uh, that logic uh, of the doctrines to us to, 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 so we can understand the, the flow of the logic of the doctrines we need to understand the clear articulation of theological uh, concepts and truth. But we need, as well, to see it in practice. We know this from our own personal lives. One thing is th theory, the other thing is practice. And so often, uh, the practice uh, shines light on the theory, on the concept. We need to see things lived out in order for us to, be, to understand them fully. It isn't enough for us just to have information. We need to, to see it in action. And so in the book of Acts, we often, in seemingly uneventful uh, passages, we see great doctrinal truths, great uh, moral uh, uh, standards being played out before our eyes. We see a man in this section of verse 1 to 6. We see a man, Paul, who is in the process actually of writing some of these letters. It is uh, during these six verses, the period comprised in these six verses, that actually Paul writes uh, quite a few of his letters. We see a man in the process of writing letters, but also in the book of Acts, living what he writes. Acts in opposition to the letters, we move away from the concept to the practice. We see it demonstrated in him. So what do we see? Why this long-winded introduction about seeing something in this passage? What is it that we see in these uneventful verses? Well, we see, among other things, but the one I want to focus and meditate upon a little bit to this morning, is the love of Paul for the church. We see Paul here as a man who is in great love for the church. It is patently obvious, although not stated by Paul, 
Although not stated by the author Luke, it is patently obvious that the fuel driving Paul is the love for Christ and his people. And that's what's really on my mind uh, to speak uh, or to, to meditate upon as we come to, to a passage like this. Paul, the church was very important to Paul. And I, I, when I say the church, I don't mean the institution of the church the, or the, the building or the concept of, a, of a, a religious institution. I mean the people that comprise the church. He loved the saints. He loved them with all his heart. He lived for them, for their sake, because he loved Christ. His entire life had been up until now devoted to the church, and he still is giving his life. For, for the sake of Christ and his church, he had endured trials, beatings, he had endured imprisonments, and still he, he cannot hold himself. He still pushes forward. Why? Because the church is, uh, is what is in love with. He said to the Philippians, well, if I'm offered up as a sacrifice, what good is that in, 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 in me being offered as a sacrifice? What joy do I have in it? He basically says to them, in, in other words, the joy that I have my, in offering my life for you is that I see individuals like you being saved, converted, being uh, the elect, being drawn into the, to the, to the kingdom. I see Christians maturing and growing in holiness. I'm paraphrasing Paul here, but that's basically what he says in the, in the letter of the Philippians that we considered uh, a year or two ago. That's, that's what driv was driving him. This was what, uh, what moved him in his earthly life ambition he had heavenly goals, make no doubt about it. He wasn't someone who lived for, for, the, for the seeing earthly uh, goals. But in his earthly life, the one ambition he, he had was this, to see the church grow, to see the people of God uh, mature. And we see in this passage, not so much in statements or not at all in statements, but we see it in this passage in action. Throughout his epistles, he, time and time again, he reminded how much he loved the saints, how much he cared for them, how much he longed for them. When he, one of the letters that he writes in this, in this section of verses 1 to 6 is the letter to the Romans. And the, at the opening of the letter to the Romans, in his introduction, he says, I long to be with you so that I can uh, share in blessings and receive. I, I want to be with you. This is what's driving this man to do what he does. He said to the, to the Colossians, if I, uh, who, if, who serve, if I who serve the Lord have to suffer, I will rejoice in my sufferings for you. In other words, I am willing to pay the price for your sake, he says to the Colossians, and to even fill up in my own body the affliction intended for Christ, for his body's sake. He, he, he's basically what John said. And what uh, John says in his, in, in his epistle that um, if you love the Lord, you love whom the Lord loves. That's, that's what motivates uh, Paul, you cannot love the Lord and be indifferent to the people he loves. So bear in mind that as we come to this passage, although 
it is in in a way sort of a geography lesson if you have maps on the back of your bible on the on the on the latter pages of your bibles it might be helpful to just keep a finger there just to to consult it is a sort of a geography lesson yes but it it expresses something of the apostle's love something of the depth of love that he has for his people So we're at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. We've looked last week that he intended to go to Jerusalem. That's that's where he he wanted to return to Jerusalem and then go to Rome. But before he does so, before he, he is able to do so, love compels him. His love for the church compels him to do exactly what he had done already in his um, uh, second and in his first missionary journey. Just to double back and just to make sure he can visit as many churches as possible uh, to encourage them. And that's how the passage begins. After the uproar ceased, after what happened in Ephesus had uh, been done uh, away with, uh, Paul called the disciples to himself, He he embraced them, and he departed to go to Macedonia. So is in Asia. And I did say it's going to be slightly a geography lesson, but it's, it's breathtaking to see the, the, the movement. So he's in Asia, that is southwest uh, or west Turkey nowadays. Um, he embraces them and he goes to Macedonia. That is the part where modern day northern Greece is. He, he, does, he, he moves from there and he, uh, he says it's after the uproar had ceased but before he went, he meets with the, with, the, with the church. He embraces them, and he goes. And why does he go? Because he loves the church. But what, what is he doing in this trip? He's encouraging them. The word uh, for encouraging here uh, is a very significant word in Scripture. It's, I don't usually like to bring the Greek word, but it's the word parakletos. Uh, it's the, 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 the verb, uh, paracle, uh, parakaleo, uh, and it is a, a verb that speaks of comforting, of, uh, of, of, of encouragement. Of, uh, of co- uh, it is the word that is used of the Holy Spirit, for instance. It is a key word that we find not only in this section, in the following section, throughout this chapter, that is the driving force behind Paul's um, journey to Macedonia, to, to Achaia, Greece, and, and back to Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, he is doing this uh, partly as well to gather an offering from the churches of Christ in the area to take to Jerusalem. Why? Because he loves the church and he wants to encourage the church in Jerusalem. Paul, Luke does not tell us exactly what Paul said to these churches as he visited them. It doesn't tell us uh, exactly the, the words, but we can more or less uh, understand the tenor of his word, uh, of, uh, of his message of encouragement. We will look at it but uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, but towards the end of this chapter, there is a, a, a record of, uh, of Paul speaking to the elders in Ephesus, and we'll look at it in, in, a, in a short while. But we might also under imply that something of what he said to the churches here was something that he, uh, of the things he had already said to the churches in previous trips. You remember in this first missionary journey, which was very difficult, 
as the other two were. He, he then doubles back uh, and, and comes through the churches of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. And what does he, he do there? He strengthens the disciples there. He exhorts them. He encourages them to continue in the faith by saying, through many tribulations, one must enter the kingdom of God. He commanded them to the Lord in whom they believed. He prayed with them. He fasted with them. He helped them in, in, the, in, in practical decision-making in the church, in the appointing of elders, in the, in the sorting out of doctrinal problems. That's what Paul was doing uh, in these churches. He's probably visiting uh, some of the churches that we've... He's most definitely visiting quite a few of the churches that we already uh, spoke of. Philippi, uh, uh, Berea, uh, uh, the, the church in, in, in Athens that we perhaps we don't get many, many records of it, but perhaps there was a community there. He is visiting these churches along the way. In similar words, the apostle must have exhorted the churches to, to remain firm in the faith in, in the midst of trial and persecution. To not count tribulations as a, a, a mark of God's displeasure, but actually to rejoice that they are facing these trials and these tribulations. It, 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 in a sense, he's saying what James says uh, to his uh, readers when he writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's what Paul was doing, a ministry of encouragement. And that's what we'll see in, in chapter 20. A ministry of encouragement founded on this love for the church. And literally said by, by, by Luke as well, uh, about his visit to the churches. Uh, sometimes, uh, that's, that's interesting about Luke. Some, in some situations, he gives us a, an ample record. Uh, in other places, he just says, well, he was there for three months. That's it. Move on to the next chapter of the, of the, of the, of the, the journey. We do not know how long he stayed in Macedonia. We don't know uh, what cities he visit, visited. We don't know uh, details about his activities. It is very possible, and this is not so much by implication, although it's, it's not possible to prove it beyond the shadow of the doubt, but it is very possible, given that Paul later to the, uh, in this time writing to the Romans, he mentions this. It is possible that during this time, Paul also made a, and this is where the map comes in handy, he also made a, uh, a foray, uh, as they say, uh, up north to the, to the region called Illyricum. Illyricum it was to the north of Macedonia. It was the, the region that, it is the region that today we find countries like Albania, Croatia, Serbia. It is possible that Paul went there because later in his letter to the Romans, he says that he has proclaimed the gospel in this region. In mighty signs and wonders, Romans 15, 19, he says, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. It is very possible because this is the only place where it actually makes sense, these three months that he spent there in Macedonia. It is the only place where you can actually have Paul go slightly up north to that region. 
Later we know that he sent Titus to Dalmatia, which is in the southern part of Illyricum. He says in his letter to Timothy, Paul says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, and Titus for Dalmatia, which is that region there. So it's uh, where it is a very strong possibility that Paul, uh, in this period, was not only encouraging the churches, but kind of going, let's just go up there and see if we can find a, a big city to, to, to preach the gospel in. And, and the Lord blessed those endeavors there. From Paul's letter, we know as, letters, we know as well that this period was a very difficult period in his ministry. As he leaves Ephesus, again, as he leaves the Asia, Turkey, I'm going to use a, a little bit of the, the modern geography. As he leaves that region of Turkey, uh, to, he goes to the port of Troas. He's been there before. That's the port that, takes him, that took him to Neapolis in Macedonia. And again, he goes to Macedonia from there, um, as he did in his second missionary journey. He says that there he found a, an open door to proclaim the gospel. But he was concerned about the reaction of the Corinthian church to his first letter that he had written in Ephesus. So Paul, while he was in Ephesus those three years, he writes a letter to the Corinthian church because he heard about some of the, the struggles there. And as he's in Macedonia, he's concerned about what he wrote in the first letter, that he writes the second. He says this in Second Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, he says. He was concerned. Why? Because he did not found, find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. He was, he was uh, restless. He was expecting to hear from Titus, the one that took the letter. He was expecting to, but he, he didn't receive anything back. And this is a time where you don't, don't just pick up the phone or send a WhatsApp message to, to get an update. Things take time in, in the old days. You don't, there's no social media to, to get a, some uh, news on, on how things are going. In Macedonia, probably, uh, again, as he comes to Macedonia, probably he stays at Philippi, we assume. Paul writes his second letter to the Corinthians. In it, we are informed that his arrival in that province was in the midst of, of tribulations. Look, look at what he writes as well in, in Second Corinthians, uh, the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7, 5 to 7. He says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus arrived, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. Titus arrived, and he brought good news. <laughs> they rejoiced not only because they saw Titus, but because there was consolation in, in how uh, they comforted uh, Titus, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, Paul says, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. 
So there were good news, but it was in the midst of struggles, in the midst of, of, of being troubled on every side, conflicts outside, fears inside, but nevertheless, God was good. And three months uh, that, that Paul stayed there, he then went for, to Achaia as well. You must have, um, Achaia was, was where Corinth was, so he goes and visits Corinth in Achaia, Greece, or southern Greece now, um, and he, he probably spent, he spent the better part of three months there, we were told, or three months. Uh, he probably spent it solving theological, liturgical, moral problems in the church of Corinth that were reve- are revealed to us in his first letter. After all, you know in the first letter that the, of the Corinthians, there were opponents to the Apostle Paul there, Paul there that were leading the church astray from sound doctrine. There were, there were struggles within that, the, in, within that church's conduct, within that church's doctrine, uh, and, and Paul was concerned about this. Another important activity of Paul during this missionary journey to Macedonia and Achaia, to that what is today Greece, as I, I mentioned last week, and, uh, as, and as I mentioned already this week as well, was to raise uh, an offering from the churches uh, to take to the church, uh, to the needy believers in Judea. And that's what we read on in the, in the final section uh, here, in this last part. We, we read of this company uh, of believers, this company of, of great men of God, this band of brothers joining together to make this trip uh, back to Jerusalem. It is in this last part from verse 3 to verse 6 that we read of, these, uh, of this group. They were wanting to go to Jerusalem, stopping at the port of Miletus, probably live, leaving from, uh, from, the, from Corinth, or desiring to leave from Corinth and go straight into Syria. Uh, however, they, they got wind of uh, a plot that was being made on Paul's life. There was a plot, plot by the Jews to kill him. For this reason, the apostle, he, said, uh, he decided, I won't go directly by sea from here. I'll return back to Macedonia, northern Greece, uh, Philippi, there and there or thereabouts, and, and I'll make my way uh, there. He's accompanied, we're told, by Sopater from Macedonia. Uh, there's also here other mentioned, or Sopater, I think I got it wrong, Sopater from Berea. Uh, and he is accompanied there to Asia. Uh, for, also, we have Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, Timothy and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. And what we're reading here is that these churches sent their men. These churches sent their representatives together. You might wonder who was the, the representative of the churches of Achaia. Uh, most uh, commentators think it was Luke himself. That's why Luke is present in this passage. You see, this is one of those passages where Luke comes in as a we, or he starts using the we. We departed, we went. Luke was probably here the, the representative of the church uh, in Achaia. What is interesting to know before we move on to the, to the end of the passage is that each church was functioning independently. 
And I must say that this is important for us because there are many ways of viewing church governance. There are those who think that church is meant to be ruled by a, a presbytery uh, uh, or a, a synod, and, and, and then the authority goes down. What we see in Scripture, what we see, for instance, in a passage like this, is that churches functioned independently from one another, each church sending their representatives, each church choosing their own representatives. What we see here is the importance of a church as well. What is a church? Can a church that is made up of people that just come in and go choose representatives? No, there is a sense that there is a church that is clearly defined, a church that, that has clear members coming together, choosing a, a, a representatives and sending them. Finally, just uh, verse 6, Just let me just mention here. It says that when we sailed from Philippi after Philipp sailing from Philippi, Philippi wasn't next to the, to, the, to the sea. They sailed from Neapolis, uh, which was the port that belonged, uh, that was the port of Philippi. They sailed from, from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas. So they then gathered up together again, having parted ways. Let me just mention this before we move on to, uh, to just a few practical applications. It doesn't say here that Paul, Luke, Sopater celebrated the days of unleavened bread. It, it is not saying to us, and it, it seems very doubtful to me, at this stage uh, of, of the life of the church that Paul had anything to do with, with celebrating the Jewish feasts. By this time, Paul had already written, written to the Corinthians that, saying that pa the Passover was done. He was saying that the Passover was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So what I think is being said here is just a, a chronological marker. It's not that they celebrated the, unleavened, uh, the days of unleavened bread. Is that they, this is kind of like, okay, if you want to know exactly the, the period where we, when we sailed, it was after or slightly after the, the days of unleavened bread. It's just meant for us to have a, a chronological reference point. Matthew Henry says something very similar. He says, about this time he wrote his first epistle to the church at Corinth and taught that Christ is our Passover and the Christian life our feast of unleavened bread. So, and when the substance come, the shadow is abolished. It, it is very doubtful that he, that he was holding to this. If he was, let me just say it like this, if he was uh, celebrating the feast, it wasn't so much that he was convinced that he needed to, it would have been perhaps uh, for the sake of Jewish Christians that still were weak uh, in their faith in this regard. But I, I, I truly believe it's just a, a reference marker. So yeah, we'll, we'll continue looking at the rest of the narrative next week. There's, a, there's an interesting story about Paul preaching a little bit too much and a, a young man named Eutychus uh, falling asleep and falling from the, from the, the window. Uh, and I don't want you to fall asleep this morning, so I'll, I'll, I'll go on to, to the conclusion, to the application. And although succinct, although very short, uneventful, no special miracles we see in this passage, it is a passage that has teaching for us. 
First of all, we learn about Christian prudence again. It is not the first time that we see this, but we learn again about being prudent as Christians. Paul was not putting himself in harm's way just for the sake of putting himself in harm's way. When he heard about the, the, the plot, he thought it was better just to go uh, and avoid the confrontation. We learn something about missionary and evangelistic work, don't we? Again, churches are not only uh, places where people come to get converted. That is, that is so much uh, uh, nonsense. Churches where, are where God's people come to gather. If people get converted, in, great, that we long for that. But churches are not only to be planned or established and, and, and kind of like left to themselves. There is a sense that there needs to be a growth. There needs to be a teaching. There needs to be an edification, an, an encouragement, a strengthening. And Paul, as he did his missionary journey, he goes out. He doesn't just come in, pop the, the, or convert, uh, see a few conversions and say, look, uh, by the way, I'm going away. Good luck, uh, I'll, I'll write you a letter or two whenever I can. No, he was concerned about establishing a foundation. And that's what he did. Whenever possible, he returns to those churches. He encourages them. He instructs them. He exhorts them. That's what he said. That is illustrated in the words of Paul. We'll come to it at some point in a, in a couple of weeks' time. But that's illustrated in the words of Paul at the end of this chapter. When he meets with the elders of Ephesus, he says to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. We also see something, not only with establishing churches and evangelism, we see something to do with preaching. And this, this, you might say, though, this is the pastor uh, uh, blowing his own horn. And, uh, but we learn in this passage that preaching is primarily or, or par excellence an instrument for edification, encouragement, and comforting of the church. And the part where you pro is the fact that it says there that he encouraged them with many words with many exhortations, with, many, uh, with much uh, prolonged <laughs> sermons. It's not, uh, it's not a coincidence that the next passage we find Paul preaching from midnight to the, dusk, uh, to the breaking of dawn. And I'm not advocating for that in our own day, don't worry. But, but it is with many words. That's what we should long for, for the word of God to be... Uh, more and more present in our lives. For us to have the word of God written in our hearts. In, in the back of our, of our conscious mind. The word preached and taught is according to the Bible itself. The, the, the primary, the most excellent means chosen by God. Used by his spirit to convert sinners, yes. Yes. And to edify saints as well. 
It's not that you get saved and then, oh good, done. I'm, uh, I'm a part of the, uh, uh, of the kingdom of God now. I don't, I don't need any more. No, that's, the, that's just the start. That's just the beginning of a, of a, of a life's journey. You need many words. You need much encouragement. You need, you need much more of the word of God to strengthen you. And finally, I'll, I'll close by, by coming back uh, to, the, to how we started. We learn the importance of loving the church of God. Brothers and sisters, the church is important to God. He loves the church not the institution, not, the, not, not the, the building, when I say the church, the saints. He loves the church so much that he gave his only begotten son for it. And the church should be important to us. All of us, not just to the pastor, but so often the, the case, or not just to... I've been, I've been harping a little bit on this uh, in this past week. It's not just for those extraordinary Christians that really have a calling to love the church, a calling to, to give of themselves to the church. It is normal. It is normative. It is a, the, the standard of any Christian to love the people of God. Because God loves them. That's what John says. If you, you, have, you cannot say you love God and, and hate the brethren. You cannot say you love God and, and, and be indifferent to the brethren, even if it's just one of them. If they are your brother and sister in Christ, you are to love them because God loves them. We ought to love the church. I hope you love this church. Let me speak to, to those who are members here. I hope you love this church, not Ridley Hall. Not the concept of, of, of the history of Ridley Hall, but you love each and every single one of your brethren in this church. I hope you do. I hope you'd be willing to die for this church. Not Ridley Hall, not the building, but for the people here. Because if you're willing to die, you're willing to give your life as well. For their good. To put them first. And I do hope that you love the church. Universal. We, there is a sense we need to display love to other Christians. And I'll, I'll get to that, that in a moment. But loving specifically your church. The people you, you are in fellowship with. The people you're, you're fighting uh, alongside with. I hope you do. Let me bring it to, the, to the, the realm of family as an illustration. I love my family more than I love other people's families. And I don't think that's, that's a wrong thing to say. I love my family more than I love other people's families. I might love other people's families as well to a great extent. But there is a sense that this is mine. And I need to be willing to live and die for them and love them uh, um, uh, with, uh, with the greatest of loves and care for them with the greatest of cares. So it is the case with the church family, with the spiritual family. Yes, we should love all of our extended family. Uh, let's say it like that. We should. 
We ought to, but especially those that are close to us. The apostle, I think it was Peter, uh, yes, it's Peter, when he, uh, in that passage where he, he was so often quoted over the, the COVID period about honoring the king, it, it also says there, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. What is he talking about? Love the brotherhood. He's talking about the church. Love the church. We're to honor all men. We're to honor the king. But all, but, but all men are not our brethren. We are to love the church. We're to love our brethren. The author of Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue. Why does he say that? Because there is a tendency, there is a danger, there is a, 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 a sense that yes, brotherly love exists, but it needs to be fostered, it needs to be encouraged, it needs to be uh, developed. Let brotherly love continue. If you, if you don't work at it, just like the relationship between a husband and a wife, if you don't work at that love... Just words won't do, the, do it, will they? I re- my wife is not in, in here now, so I can say this. Uh, she wouldn't mind as well. Um, when we were about to get married, and I think I've told this story uh, before, but I, I, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't something uh, groundbreaking, but it was something that stuck with me to this day. When we were about to get married, because the church building where we were members was slightly smaller, and we, she has a big family, um, uh, when we needed a, a bigger uh, church building to, uh, to have the, the wedding uh, ceremony, we went to another church in, a, in our city, uh, which actually the, the pastor was Sally's uncle as well. Um, and we sat down with him, we asked if, if it would be okay. We already knew that the answer would be yes, it wasn't so much... Uh, but he took that opportunity to to give us a, a premarital pastoral counseling session without us asking for it. But he, fair enough, it's his niece and and all of that. And he said to us, "Look, love is more than just a sentiment." And I don't know if this is factually correct of saying, but the way he said it made sense. And I think there is certainly an element of truth that love is more than just a sentiment. It is a verb to love. It is an action. If you say you love her, if you say you love him and you do nothing, do you really do? You need to put it into practice. You need to work at it. And that's what the Bible says. Uh, Romans, Paul, the, the letter he wrote while he was doing this, while he was displaying this love, he says to the Romans, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. We are to love one another. We are to esteem others better than ourselves. We are to seek our brother's good before our own. This is not extraordinary Christianity. This is the norm. This is the normal. This is the pattern for us. And do we, do we, are we able to get at it? No, but th- we should consider this to be the bare minimum. This is the bare minimum that the Lord has asked us. This is not going above and beyond what the Lord has asked us. And yes, towards us and towards others. 
I must say that one of the things that saddens me often in our circles, Reformed Baptist circles, is the lack of love that we demonstrate for other Christians. The lack of, uh, of, uh, of, of love, even though we don't agree with them in everything, if they confess Christ, we, we are to consider them brethren. We are to act as brothers to them. Yes, we are to hold with firmness our beliefs, with not trifle with God's truth. But if they confess Christ, if they confess Christ as their Savior, we are to treat them and love them as well. Not to speak of them as if they are some kind of... of, of well, I won't go into examples, but, not to, but to treat them with respect, with love, to be affectionate towards them. So, brethren, we should always love and live as brethren. Then the more we grow in our devout affection towards God, necessarily we grow in our devout affection towards one another. It is, it is one of those laws of physics of the, of the kingdom. If you hate your brethren, you cannot say you're, uh, you're, you're in a good spiritual state. I don't care. That, that just doesn't make any sense. It is one of those uh, incontrovertible things of the kingdom. The more you grow in the love for God, the more you grow in the love for, for, for the, God's people. If there is a disconnect there, I would say that's probably because you're just fooling and 